All right, good morning, everyone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we are on page 78. That's where we left off. To give ourselves a bit of context, we are on, uh, we'll take a look at page 76, the wrath of God and the sacrificial death of Christ. Of course, these things go hand in hand. We spent some time last week talking about wrath and the, way that, the ways that it's been misinterpreted in the latter half of the 20th century, early, early part of the 21st century here as a purely negative thing, as something uh, that is objectionable. But we spent quite a deal of time talking about how love and wrath actually go hand in hand, and you really can't have one without the other. One of my favorite lines heretofore from Scare, at least in terms of humor, on page 77, theologians who find the scriptural teaching of God's wrath distasteful to their delicate sensitivities dismiss the notion of Christ's death as the vicarious satisfaction for the sins of the world, among whom then scare lists. Schleiermacher, Ritchell, von Harnack, uh, going back all the way to Abelard, who really replaces this with the moral theory of the atonement. And then also over on page 78, where we left off, uh, Gerhard Ferdi listed here as well as one who denies the atonement and one who, uh, you know, it is very, very fitting. His delicate sensitivities doesn't, uh, doesn't have place for the, the wrath of God uh, and its connection with the vicarious atonement. Okay, now uh, to zoom all the way out so that we don't lose the forest for the trees, when we're talking about Christology, we're really talking about two main points. The person of Christ, that's the first, and the second is the work of Christ. If you're talking about the person of Christ, remember there are these three main principles we want to keep in mind. True man, true God, one person. And then if we move over to the work of Christ, I think we could simply suffice with one point, Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's, it's that, that's really the point. Now, if you want to flesh that out into its own threefold manner, you could, do the, uh, you could do the Christus Victor motif, which we're going to talk about. You can do the atonement motif, which we've been talking about. And uh, you can do the moral or Christ as example motif. Those three. So uh, Christus Victor, that's really, again, putting it in as simple possible terms as I can, that's Christ by his power overcoming the powers of sin, death, and the devil, thus conquering, thus being a victor. The atonement we've been discussing where he placates the wrath of God, where he pays what we owe, um, where he stands in our stead to receive uh, what we deserve while we uh, receive from him <laughs> what we do not deserve, namely uh, God's love and mercy. Okay, and then um, in terms of example, we can just 
very, very superficially, again, think of where Jesus predicts his going to Jerusalem, his suffering at the hands of the uh, scribes and elders, his dying, his rising, then not but a few verses later saying, whoever would follow me must take up his cross. So, and deny himself, take up his cross. So the way of salvation is the way of the cross. That's really the, uh, the example theory. All right, so you can, you can expand it out to those three points if you want to get fancy. But that should give you just a really basic framework which you can return to. The person of Christ, the work of Christ. On the person of Christ, true man, true God, one person. On the work of Christ, Christ crucified for you for the forgiveness of your sins. If you want to do threefold, Christus Victor, atonement, and example. And that will give you, hopefully, just a mental framework, something you can latch hold of, maybe even commit to memory. And then when the topic of Christology comes up, generally speaking, you'll be able to fit whatever it is that's under discussion into one of those categories, into one of those, uh, those headings. All right. That takes us then to page 78, first full paragraph, Scare writes, though it may appear wrong to speculate over whether man could have been rescued from his dilemma in any other way than through the atoning death of the God-man, the almost certain answer is that this was the only way in which it could have been resolved. Now do note he says it's the almost certain answer. There, there is always an element of humility to this. Uh, because we simply don't know. We're simply not God or in that position. So there is an element of, of humility. But very frequently in recent conversations regarding the atonement, it's just asserted outright that God can do whatever he wants to do and that we ought not think of this as anything uh, organic to, inherent, necessary, that kind of language, the fact that God becomes man, the fact that um, then the God-man, Jesus Christ, dies on the cross and is risen, could salvation have been accomplished in another way? Well, scarce as we can almost be certain that the answer is no. It is almost certainly the case that it had to happen in exactly this way. So, scare continues. God could not have justly, there's the key word, God could not have justly abolished sin by a divine sovereign decision, since this would have contradicted his hatred for sin, which is defined as an affront to his holiness and essence. I'm just placing a finger there so we don't lose our place. Very quickly, Scares pointing out the, the side of God, that side of the equation. On the other side of the equation is man. When you have God, when you propose this idea, like Gerhard Ferdy does, that God just forgives by fiat, just, hey, you're forgiven, two things happen. First of all, you lose the justice of God. And and basically, it it turns God into an even nastier creature because, uh, then, then I mean, by nastier, I mean then Ferdy thinks he is nasty through the atonement. Ferdy views that as nasty. So he proposes this alternative that God just forgives by fiat. But I would argue that that's far nastier than the nastiest conception Ferdy has between his ears regarding God. And that is simply you turn God into uh, the great mobster in the sky who just makes allowance for evil and then forgives it carte blanche. 
And so then the answer to that is like, well, should I go on sinning that grace may abound? And any answer you give there is like not sufficient. I mean, of course, radical Lutherans who follow Ferdy parrot Paul and say, uh, no, by no means. Well, on what grounds shouldn't you, though? On what grounds shouldn't you? If God just forgives you and dismisses it, it's really rather unimportant. You see, so it turns God into uh, this unjust, uh, not good, kind of gangster in the sky who just grants permission and then, and that, uh, well, that's it. That's it. It's, he grants forgiveness and the forgiveness then becomes permission, becomes functional permission. Because if all is forgiven and has always been forgiven, then why not go sin? Well, because the Bible says, well, who cares about that? The Bible says a lot of things that we ignore, right? And now you run into the law gospel reductionism that just turns out to be a gospel reductionism. The gospel is all that matters. That's a really, really perverted system. What it does to God is really, really perverted. The other side of the coin that at least Scare doesn't mention here in this sentence is what it does to man. What it does to man. To simply have sins forgiven carte blanche by God apart from the sacrificial death of Christ, any concept of, of justice, is that it renders our deeds meaningless. And I already hinted at that in my previous description of what it does to God. But, but if someone sins against you and God just says, I forgive you, it's tantamount to just saying, eh, that's all right. It doesn't matter. Right. Now, if you, put, if you interpose Christ, the mediator, and you see the wrath of God poured out on Christ and, the, and the, great, the great suffering that took place, it's an entirely different thought paradigm. It's an entirely different conception. When, when someone sins against you, that's not right. It's not right in God's eyes. And your, your suffering cries out to God for vengeance. Only by the interposition of Jesus, only by Jesus becoming mediator, is there any resolve to that? Which is why when we're forgiving people serious sins, we always as Christians turn to the cross. We always as Christians turn to the cross and we say, there Jesus forgave my debts, and not only my debts, but their debts, therefore I forgive. There Jesus won atonement for those debts. There Jesus made payment. There justice was satisfied. If I want, if I want vengeance or I want my sin to be taken seriously, you know, the sin that somebody else has committed against me to be taken seriously, my meditation is upon the cross, and there you will see that it is taken with the utmost seriousness. Right? Now, if you don't have any of that, if you deny the atonement and you've just got God winking at sin in the sky. It change, again, it changes your own personal motivations and attitude towards sin, but it also does this really perverse thing, that people who sin against you, um, now, now you, um, because you just dismiss that at, at, by your own fiat, oh, I just forgive you, then whatever sins you commit against others are to be met with that same fiat. You must for. You must forgive me. So this really perverted thing happens. I've witnessed this firsthand multiple times. But this really perverted thing happens by Ferdiites where they'll commit some grave sin against someone. And then, and then here they come. Again, they hate the law, but they can't avoid the law. Here they come with their law. You must forgive me. You must forgive me. You mu and by forgiveness, let me set the terms as if it never happened. Right? So uh, this just sets people up to be perpetual abusers perpetual abusers. 
They, they do whatever they want to do to you whenever they want to do it. And if you stand up, you're the legalist. If you say, hey, wait a minute, I forgive you, but there's going to be some lines drawn in the sand from here on out, you're the legalist. You see how toxic this is? This is just, it's utterly perverse. When you lose the atonement, you lose justice, you lose God's wrath, there are, you do great danger to your understanding of God, and you do great danger to your understanding of man. So that's what's at stake here. And again, this, this theology is anything but... Uh, you know, some sort of scholastic problem isolated to the seminary classroom. This has very, very practical, tangible impact on how people live. On how people live. I mean, just pick, pick any, any one of the Ten Commandments, pick some gross sin, and it can simply be justified by, well, I don't keep the law anyway, but God forgives everything. Or, um, well, since I don't keep the law and you don't keep the law, um, whatever I do to you must simply be forgiven, or else it's your problem. Really, really sick stuff here. This is, this is, by the way, I mean, this is why it gets called, um, this is why it gets called antinomianism. But this is a kind of really, really, I mean, exceedingly perverse lawlessness. I don't know if there's a more consecrated or more concentratedly perverse form of lawlessness than this. If there is, I haven't encountered it because this actually twists the forgiveness and mercy of God in service of of pure anomia, of pure, I'll do whatever I want and you must forgive me. it really, really is, or, or, I, or I'll live whatever I, however I want, and you can't, con, you can't condemn me or call me into check. It's really, really nasty, because it takes the gospel itself. I mean, first of all, it takes the person and work of Christ and guts it and changes it entirely. And then it takes the gospel itself and turns it into pure 200% lawlessness and a demand that other people um, bow to your lawlessness in the name of the gospel. So you see, this, you see this theology with huge inroads in LCMS, um, but really finding its native soil in the ELCA, where if you want to see why the ELCA is the way it is, you know, rainbow-haired, multi-pierced, lesbian and homosexual pastors, you know, basically chiding people for upholding the Ten Commandments, Oh, gee, where did that come from? Where did that come from? I mean, it comes from this idea that uh, God is not just, God is merciful, God is not law, God is gospel, and therefore, who are you to say anything against what I want to do? It's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. It just has a, a quote-unquote conservative garb to it in the LCMS, but it's really the same thing. All right, well, another... Right. Great point. Great point. Yeah, so, so the point was brought up for those of you online who couldn't hear it, that even if you go all the way back to the garden, you see God's extreme justice. Or at least it's extreme yeah. for our perspective. It's just regular old justice. It only seems extreme to us because we're coming from a perverse, sinful, fallen state. But where, where for one sin, that's it. There's a huge consequence. Now, not only does, does there come with that... Um, you know, the actual manifestation of that 
consequence, them being thrown out of the garden, but then the, the, the promise and decree of God's mercy, the embodiment of that mercy as he clothes them um, in the slain animal, the innocent dying for the guilty and clothing them, and, so, uh, and not to mention the, you know, the proclamation of the coming of Christ. So all of that's there. And then your point is that if you look at the scriptures, that's consistent all the way through. There's never a time in the Old Testament where God you know, says, okay, well, I'm not going to be wrathful. I'm just going to forgive everyone. So you've got this, you've got God who is entirely just, entirely merciful, working for the salvation of man all the way through the scriptures consistently. And how odd would it be to get up to the point of Christ and just say then, okay, well, all of that's in the past. Um, by the way, your comment reminds me because there are some guys who take it exactly like this. Uh, uh, Robert Capon, who's not a Lutheran but is loved by many Lutherans, and also uh, Jim Nestigan argue and preach in just this way that uh, God learned his lesson, that God uh, got it wrong in the Old Testament and finally learned his lesson that wrath wasn't the way, mercy alone was the way. I can't you imagine the sheer arrogance of that statement? <clears throat> but that's, that's precisely how these guys think about it. Um, so the rubber really hits the road with the figure of John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist, when he came with his repent and fire and brimstone and the axes laid at the root of the trees, John the Baptist was all wet. He got it wrong. Uh, boy, did he have to learn um, from Jesus who is truly merciful. That's the way this narrative is taught. Of course, it's just it's hogwash. I mean, it's utter hogwash. But. So, yeah, flee this. Flee this. All right, Scare continues. On the other hand, he could not have allowed man to wallow in his own sin, since this would have contradicted his love and mercy, attributes which are essential to God's nature. Okay, there the key word probably mercy. So in the, in the preceding sentence, you have justice, the language of justly, and here in this sentence, mercy, and the language of love and mercy. <clears throat> God's love for the world is a reflection of his eternal love for the Son. There is also the matter of whether God, for the sake of his honor, could have forfeited the visible creation to Satan and still remained the Lord, not only of heaven, but of earth. This must be discussed below, but it does show that just as it is improper to understand the cause of the death of Jesus merely as the result of historical causes, so it is equally inadequate, inadequate excuse me, to see his death as motivated by only one autonomous divine attribute or quality to the exclusion of the others. Schleiermacher, Ritchell, and their followers, working from a unitary understanding of God, considered the love of God to be his sole attribute and concluded that God was not serious in his wrath over sin. And which is why the scriptures testify to the world ending not in uh, a deluge of fire, but in an avalanche of daisies, right? Scare continues. The ultimate result of this teaching is universalism. The view that there is no hell and that all will eventually be saved. 
this teaching was set forth. This, by the way, um, is on very unfortunately, very sadly, making huge inroads in Eastern Orthodoxy. Because Eastern Orthodoxy wants to deny the wrath of God, wants to make God strictly loving. And when you have God strictly loving and you carry that through, God is love, not wrath, and you carry that through to its ultimate conclusion, then there can be no eternal hell. So that, this is where Scare is exactly right, that if you follow the love, that God is love, not wrath, to its logical conclusion, you end up denying the accusation of the law, denying the penalty of death, denying uh, eternal damnation, and you end up with universalism. So once more from Scare, the ultimate result of this teaching is universalism, the view that there is no hell and that all will eventually be saved. This teaching was set forth as early as the third century by Origen. It results in understanding the death of Christ not as propitiatory sacrifice, but as moral example. The last manifestation of God's wrath, universally visible, is the Day of Judgment, which is part of the message of Jesus and the Apostles. The Baptist warns his hearers about the approaching wrath, Matthew 3, 7. Two parables, the tares among the wheat and the good and the bad fish, teach that there will be a final separation in which those who do not acknowledge Jesus as Christ will meet retribution. In the little apocalypse, the Son of Man, as judge of all the nations, consigns the unbelievers to everlasting dark, darkness. The little apocalypse is that part of uh, Matthew 25 that Dr. Scare's referring to, and you probably remember it as the separation of the sheep and the goats, um, the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. <clears throat> Scare continues, This is the wrath of the Lamb enthroned with God against unbelievers and persecutors of the church. Revelation 6. There is a prior wrath of God of which Jesus alone is the target, as the German version of the Augsburg Confession holds. In Gethsemane, Jesus three times requested that God would remove the cup from him. The cup in the Old Testament is the ordinary expression for the wrath of God. You can see references Jeremiah 25:15, Isaiah 51:17 and Isaiah 23:32. During the last three hours of the death of Jesus, the earth is covered with a real darkness to indicate the deeper mystery of the Son's abandonment by the Father. Darkness in the Gospels refers not so much to physical absence of light as to the absence of God. And he gives you some verses to compare on that point. In this deep abandonment, in which Jesus no longer experiences the presence of a gracious God, he calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words considered so sacred that Matthew preserved them in Hebrew and Mark in Aramaic. Without this real desertion by God, which was the wrath of God which Jesus experienced, his death is without salvific meaning. 
With it, his death serves as the foundation of all Christology. <laughs> Not only as the center, but the totality of Christianity. And this is where, by the way, you can find statements uh, from Luther going forward that to deny the atonement is to deny Christianity. That's why. Um, because if you're, if you're going to deny what Jesus did on the cross, like, what could you have that's more central than what he did on the cross? If you're going to gut that and say that that was an accident, you've just gutted the heart of Christianity and replaced it with something else. Scare continues, between God's active wrath and man's destiny for perdition stands Jesus as the sole recipient of that wrath and as the giver of all graces which flow forth from that death. Paul described the theological reality of the cross by saying that in this act, Christ became sin for us so that we would become God's righteousness in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 So he who knew no sin becomes sin for us, that we sinners might become his righteousness, the righteousness of God. Uh, that's the, the blessed exchange. And, of course, Luther spends quite a bit of time on this, as do uh, other church fathers. <clears throat> And if he becomes sin for us, it's that he might suffer the penalty of sin. You know, it's not just, what would be the purpose otherwise? What would be the purpose otherwise? Okay. Well, drawing to a conclusion then here in the section on uh, the wrath of God and the sacrificial death of Christ, let's Get the final paragraph, bottom of page 79. Essential to the apostolic preaching was not only that Christ died, but that he died by crucifixion. Paul applies Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23, to Christ's death by crucifixion to conclude that in this way he became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 Cursed is the man who dies on the tree. That's uh, Deuteronomy 21. And Paul takes that up to say, you know, whereas in 2 Corinthians 5, it's Christ became sin for us. In Galatians 3.13, it's Christ became a curse for us. Again, what is the point of that? Unless it's atonement, unless he is switching places with us, bearing our sin, bearing our curse, that we might be forgiven, that we might be raised from the dead and freed from the curse. Scare continues, Jesus' death as sacrifice is a Trinitarian event. Christ is the sacrificial atonement who offers his life to the Father with the assistance of the Spirit. Christ does this because he loves the Father and the Father loves the Son. The Father who requires the death of the sinner both offers and accepts his son's death. The proclamation of this death causes faith to arise in the heart, but the effectiveness of this death as a part of the divine plan is a reality prior to and apart from faith. Pieper is also clear in stating that Christ's death appeases the divine wrath. 
Okay, so um, what's, what's uh, Scare's final point there other than what he says is in agreement with our foremost 20th century dogmatician, the preceding sentence, uh, that what, what is not fleshed out here is the distinction between the objective and subjective justification, and that distinction is very helpful, that objectively that is apart from man's belief or unbelief, Jesus died on the cross and made sin, atonement for the sins of the whole world that that's a simply a transaction that God did. And then the gospel is the proclamation that God has done this. And on the basis of this, our sins are forgiven. Okay. And then when faith grasps hold of that, one can, be, one can be said to be subjectively justified. The subject, right, is justified. And so then uh, that's, that defines a Christian, one who believes in the work of of Christ already completed. There, there, this is a very important way to think, a very important distinction for a variety of reasons. But most importantly, that you, don't, that you don't fall into what many evangelicals in our day and age fall into, which is a reflexive faith. Whether or not you're saved doesn't so much depend on what Christ did. It depends on your faith in what Christ did. And so the question of whether you're saved or not isn't the question of did Christ die for me on the cross? It's the question of, do I believe? So you end up into this. Uh, Philip Carey, uh, he's not a Lutheran, but he's got a great article on this. Fides uh, reflexiva is the Latin, faith reflecting upon itself. So you end up having faith in your faith. And this is from a pastoral perspective. What Satan, one of the places where Satan wants to push you. Because you can always, he can easily disprove that your faith is worthy. Right? So he very subtly and very, I mean, this is typically how this works. But, so you're justified by faith, right? Yeah, I'm justified by faith. Okay, so you would say that uh, you have faith in the one true God. Yeah, I have faith in the one true So you fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Well, yeah, I thought. So you keep the first commandment. You know, well, no, I don't keep the first commandment. Or maybe you say, I do, and he's like, okay, well, I rest my case. You know, now you're an utter Pharisee, right? You think you keep the first commandment. The other ones must be cake. Um, or, or you say, no, I don't keep the first commandment. Do you keep it in any way, shape, or form? No, not really. Not without sin in some way. You know. So then, okay, well then, in what sense do you have real faith? And he just plays these stupid games. But they're not stupid when you're going through it. They're a, you know, a deep affliction as you go through it. And anyway, he just continues to play this game of until you just realize that this is, this is also what's really eerie when you hear um, evangelicals, whether they're some of the popular megastars, the pastors and musicians, or just people posting on Reddit or whatever it is, that the Christians that fall away, a very, very, very frequent theme, if not, if not basically a universal theme is, one day I just didn't believe anymore. And so it's this recognition, what's going on is this recognition that the faith I thought was there is no longer there. So my faith in my faith is now ungrounded. I no longer have faith in my faith. I mean, the person never exactly had faith in the objective work of Christ crucified 2,000 years ago. They never had faith in the objective work that God saved them through baptism. They have faith in this perception that I have faith. So as soon as the perception of having faith goes away, they say, I lost faith. Their eyes are, in, are entirely internalized, looking at their own faith, as it were. 
So we want to avoid this entirely, and this paradigm helps us to do this, to realize that the question of whether or not we're saved, whether or not our sins are atoned for, whether or not we've been reconciled to God, is a question answered 2,000 years ago on the cross. And that is applicable universally and to each of us individually. Even more concretely is the promises of baptism, of course, as we've referenced. Baptism now saves you. Are you baptized? You know. And there the question becomes this, not a question of do you have faith, and, and this is really where the, but rather, this is where we ought to take the battle with Satan and those kinds of afflictions that I was talking about a moment ago where he, taught, he attacks faith head on. The question isn't whether or not I have faith. Right? The question is, does God lie? That's the real question. Because if, if God says your sins are forgiven, if God says baptism now saves you, if God says that he does not desire to condemn the world, but he sends his son that the world might have life and that all through, who believe through him might not perish. Is God lying? And there the answer is no. And that precisely is the way that the devil's defeated in this question, is by saying it's, it's, not, a, it's not a question of whether or not I have faith. I can always doubt that. I can always find some amount of hypocrisy or lack in my faith. So I'm going to punt that question altogether and I'm going to say, it's, a question of, it's not a question of whether I have faith, it's a question of if God lies. And if what God says is true, then I believe. And that, by the way, is the definition of faith. But you see what faith, I mean, this is, when you untangle this whole thing, faith has just said, I'm not going to have faith in anything inside of me. I'm going to have faith only in that which is outside of me, namely the work and promise of God, the crucifixion and forgiveness of sins that God declares to me. And that, that is definitionally what faith is. It clings to that which is outside. Very, very few people who are losing faith today say, I once believed that Jesus Christ died for my sins, but now I've received evidence to the contrary and I no longer believe it. Or I once believed that God was incapable of lying, now I believe he's capable of lying and in fact he has lied to me. Nobody says that. Have you noticed that? But, but it's always this, I've lost my faith. I just don't feel it anymore. What was once there isn't there any longer, and I'm coming to terms with that. It's all having faith in one's own faith. So we're steered clear from this. I'm sorry for the digression, but I think a very important one given the... I don't know if it's really a rash. It appears to be this ongoing trend. In fact, it, it seems to be quite trendy and, and quote-unquote cool to sort of have a faith crisis it, this is within evangelical circles, popular evangelical, to have a faith crisis and have, you know, I think it's a cry for attention and everyone's, you know, pouring out attention. Then even after the fact, it's like, okay, well, if you lost your faith truly, then just walk away. Why not? Ah, because you've got to have the attention. You've got to have everybody pouring out their attention upon you and, and uh, doting upon your ego. All right, well... Yes, well, um, we'll take, uh, we'll take this, this hand and any other questions or comments that need to be made, and then we'll move on to Christ's death as moral example. This is so Yeah. Yeah, there's some, thank you for that comment. Of course, the comment reflecting for those of you online on, 
on the lawlessness of our age, the increasing lawlessness where government even fails to uphold the law. So you have this lawlessness running rampant in the right-hand kingdom, this lawlessness running rampant in the left-hand kingdom. Now, radical Lutherans like to point out that no one is ever without law, even if it's sort of their own self-invented law. And that's, that point is actually well taken in and of itself. This is, uh, in many respects, identical to what Luther called the opinio legis, that is, that within each and every human being, there is this desire to create laws and thereby justify oneself uh, while putting others down. And if nothing else, sort of getting this relief in my ego that I'm the righteous one, right? I'm on the right side. And of course, you see that in spades on both sides politically and um, you see that in the riots and this kind of thing that, you know, everyone thinks they're righteous. Now, the mistake of the radical Lutherans, since we're talking about all their forefathers here, is to s- dismiss this as legalism and just say, see, legalism is our problem. What we just need is, you know, more gospel. Like, that is, that is to s- so poorly diagnose the problem, you know. What we need and by what they mean by more gospel is just more leniency, more and more mercy, which is the last thing we need. I mean, it's like a heroin addict needing more heroin. So the definition, I mean, we've, we're doing fine in that area. We get, we're lucky if we can get a judge to uphold the law. I mean, we're lucky if we can get a government to protect minors now, I mean, from, from sexual attack. It's just, it's, it's preposterous. We are living in an age of profound lawlessness. Now, work with me just on a couple very simple biblical points. The definition of sin is anomia, lawlessness. This is in 1 John. And by lawlessness, we mean very specifically not the absence of any morals or sense of right or wrong. That's the mistake the, the antinomians, the radical Lutherans make. By anomia, we mean a departure from the law of God. Of course it's going to be replaced with another legal system. Of course. But that doesn't make it legalism. That makes it definitionally anomia. It is a departure from God's law and a supplanting of another law, which is no law at all, thus antinomianism, thus legalism. So you see that um, the, uh, the rioters, for example, are very legalistic. Boy, if you don't stop your your dining at the restaurant and assert what they want you to assert, there's going to be a penalty. You've broken their made-up nonsensical law. So yeah, they're very legalistic, but only in a way that is precisely anomia, contrary to the law of God. So it is entirely aside the point that there's all these legalisms. They are definitionally anomia, unrighteousness, and anti-God's law. Which is, so let let us not be confused. The man of lawlessness, the antichrist in scripture, isn't a guy who just says, hey, anything and everything goes. He is supplanting God's law with his own sense of right and wrong, his own sense of morality, and permitting what God forbids and forbidding what what God commands. You know, that's, if I said that right. But anyway, you get the gist. You get the gist. So we ought not be deterred by those that tell us, we're living in an age of lawlessness, they scoff. No, it's, everybody's legalists. Look at them. It completely misses the theological point. Completely misses the theological point. 
Of course, it is precisely their anti-biblical legalism that is definitionally lawlessness. Well, get, get a little worked up on that one. Right, yes, thank you. This, isn't, this shouldn't be rocket science, should it? Uh, it, is really, it is really indicative of the strong delusion of which the scriptures speak. Whether we're reaching the end of the cosmos or just the end of the West is re it's really immaterial in terms of what we see. Whether it's one or the other doesn't so much matter. We're seeing very strong delusion poured out inside and outside of the church uh, in service of great wickedness and evil. We, we do our best to try to extricate ourselves from that because I mean, we're sinners, we're living in the world, we're fish in the same tank, so we're, we're imbibing this all ourselves, but to recognize it in ourselves and begin to purge it as quickly, as, as expeditiously as we can, as forcefully as we can, and then in trying to free ourselves to free others. This is precisely what Jesus teaches uh, in the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about the the uh, speck in your brother's eye and the log in your own. We very frequently read that superficially as if that's simply Jesus saying, well, since everybody has a log, you got to take care of yourself and never worry about the speck the word in your brother's eye. The words of Jesus uh, contradict that outright, where he says, first remove the plank that is in your own, then you will see to remove the speck in your brother's eye. I mean, unless you're going to put irony in the mouth of Jesus there, and then you're going to put irony in the mouth of Jesus throughout the entire uh, Sermon on the Mount, and then to be consistent in everything else that Jesus teaches. So the fact of the matter is uh, Jesus is essentially teaching there, extricate yourself, get rid of the sins you know, that have infiltrated you in this wicked age, and as you're doing that, and you will begin to see enough to be able to help your brother, that's precisely what he's teaching. That's precisely what we're called to do here as the church in this uh, particular time and place. All right. Well, any other uh, comments or questions we have on this section, the wrath of God and the sacrificial death of Christ? If not, we'll, uh, we'll go into Christ's death as moral example. All right. So Christ's death as moral example. Now, what we've seen heretofore is a negative use of this, where... Christ's death as moral example supplants or replaces the atonement motif. And then we see problems, obviously, because it really fits this idea that you have to follow Christ's moral example in order to get into heaven. So it naturally fits into this sort of self-justification motif as well. So there are major dangers associated with the moral example. But is there a right way to understand the moral example? Let's, uh, let's follow along with Scare and find out the answer. Top of page 80. As already mentioned, a desire to emphasize Christ's life and death as a moral example often leads to a denial of his death as a propitiatory sacrifice. This theory is known as the exemplary, exemplary, excuse me, exemplary theory of the atonement. Characteristically, it does not understand Christ's death as a redemption or payment for sin. Rather, as its name suggests, 
it sees the meaning of Christ's life and death exhausted in his providing Christians with an example to follow. And this is kind of one of the ironies of like Ferdy's position, because even though Ferdy doesn't like this language and doesn't like the language of morality or virtue or anything like that, um, Christ becomes not the sacrificial atonement, but he becomes the preacher of the gospel par excellence. And so the highest then Christian calling in Ferdiism is to become a preacher of this gospel, just like Jesus, you see. So it's kind of one of these ironies where Ferdy would never intend to put forward the moral example, but he ends up doing it. Because if you deny the atonement, the only thing you have left is Christus Victor and, and moral, unless you're going to go kind of off the farm. All right, let's continue with Scare. The moral influence view of the atonement assumes a high view of man's moral ability. Original sin is either denied or at least held not to have destroyed completely man's ability to perform good in the eyes of God. Since the death of Christ is not seen as satisfying either God's justice or legal demands, the doctrine of the Incarnation becomes unnecessary. The 19th and 20th century adherents of the moral theory of the Atonement tend to ignore or deny the deity of Christ. Now, I don't think that that's true for Ferdy and company, but I, at least I haven't seen that ever. Um, it, it does manifest itself tangentially in one of Ferdy's disciples, Steve Paulson, who argues that Christ sins on the cross. Now, if, you, if you're true God and true man, how are you going to sin, right? So, yeah, so the fact that you can sin calls into question immediately the divinity, right? And so, so you do have a tangential thing there. But again, nobody, nobody in the Ferdy camp that I'm aware of sets out to you know, state that God isn't divine. Whereas in the earlier, more liberal camp, um, th there's much more tolerance for that. And that really, I think, is what Scare is alluding to here. He continues, God's love was seen as the primary attribute to which the other divine attributes were subordinated. So there again, God's love trumps everything. Their view of divine love did not allow God to avenge evil either on sinners or on Christ as the substitute for man before God. <laughs> Please put your finger there so we don't... But this also, by the way, this view, um, if it doesn't directly affect it, it runs parallel to it. And that is precisely the unraveling of the civil or left-hand kingdom. In a society that no longer views God or views judgment, you have an immoral society because there's this, there's this inherent sense of either, either there is no God or there is a God and he's not watching or he's watching but he just doesn't care. Then you can live and do as you see fit. Right? So again, you, you've, got this, you've got this idea that if God doesn't avenge evil, 
then, then what does it matter what I do, right? So these ideas run parallel that even if you don't have Christianity per se, if you just have a worldview where there's God and there's judgment, even if it's not meted out in this life, but at the conclusion of this life, or if not at the conclusion of this life, at some great judgment in the future, even if you've got that, you've got a sense of morality inherent in the people. I mean, this, by the way, is irrespective of the question of whether or not America was a quote-unquote Christian nation ever in the past, which to me is like not very material. What, what is the fact is you have a, the, the vast majority of people at an earlier time in our country believe that there is a higher being and we are accountable, will be held accountable, and one day will pay for what we've done. You even see that, it, struck me, it strikes me as entirely odd, but you even, um, you see this culturally, remember, remember the whole idea of putting your hand on the Bible to swear an oath. I mean, this isn't voodoo. It's basically saying that, that I am a, I, I'm going to be judged by God, if not present tense, at the end of my life, and if not at the end of my life, at the final judgment. I'm going to be judged by God on the basis of what I hear say. I mean, what is that today but just like this relic that nobody even knows what it means? And that really is illustrative of, of how far we've fallen as a culture. But the point being that when you, when you get rid of God and when you get rid of his justice and when you get rid of this idea that God will enact vengeance or will enact justice, you not only, you not only run into these quote-unquote theological problems, these right-hand kingdom problems we're talking about, you also run into profound left-hand problems because nobody lives, uh, nobody lives morally. Now, where nobody's living morally, morally, what you also then see is a proliferation of government and police because they're absolutely necessary to rein in the immorality of people who no longer believe they're going to be held accountable by anything, you see? The more, the more you, have a, you have a mass in the population that believes they're going to be held accountable to God, the less police force and government you need because they're self-governing. Because they realize that what can man do to me? And I get away with nothing, right? I mean, both of which are true. But this is, this is um, I think what you, what I'm, the point I'm really trying to make is whether there's causation here or they simply run parallel, you can see the way that we've gone in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries with this. And you can see the effect, how the left hand and the right hand kingdom are interacting and or mirroring each other. And this denial of, of God's wrath, this denial of, uh, of God bringing justice to bear. All right, so uh, their view of divine love, scare rights, summarizing these folks, their view of divine love did not allow God to avenge evil either on sinners or on Christ as the substitute for man before God. The moral theory of the atonement is a psychological process resembling an aberrant understanding of sanctification. So one thing to note here is that in denying the that the atonement takes place extranos, outside of us, in Christ, we are only left with one alternative, and that's that the atonement or the Christ event takes place within us, intranos, 
and that in the form of this psychological process, uh, as Scare says, resembling an aberrant understanding of sanctification. Okay. So this is just something to keep in mind, is where you lose or deny that Christ is actually doing something on the cross, what you take away there ends up getting put in here. Okay. So, uh, Scare continues, Boltman's idea that the cross changes man's unauthentic into authentic existence should also be placed with the moral theory of atonement. So again, you see these guys deny the atonement in terms of what goes on on the cross outside, and so it becomes this inside internal thing that takes place in the person, in, in Boltman's idea becoming, going from unauthentic into authentic. Scare continues, the view is so subjective that it does not need to operate with any firm understanding about God or even history, as is the case with Boltman, whose demythologizing theology questions the authenticity of the words and deeds of Jesus. In other words, these things are of a piece because Boltman, you, know, you remember his program to demythologize anything that basically we now know as enlightened men based on reason and science, no can't happen like miracles. We can just go through and excise all of that out of the scriptures. The point that Scare's making is, is he can do that because what happens in the scriptures, what happens in the history doesn't matter as much as what happens now, right? God's acting upon man now. All right, well, we're, uh, we're about, we've got five minutes, and rather than, rather than press on, let's simply take a break here. And uh, if you have any questions or any thoughts, of course, I'll take those from you in just a moment. But we will simply pick up next week on page 80. Uh, there the, at the very bottom, we'll finish Christ's death as moral example. And then we're through this, again, this rather lengthy chapter that is based on the work of Christ. We've done the person of Christ. We're doing the work of Christ. And then we will enter next week into chapter 8, very controversial, very interesting chapter, Christ's descent into hell. And, of course, after his descent, we have his resurrection, his ascension, and uh, his second coming both treated in the same, those latter two treated in the same chapter, and then we're done. All right, the Lord be with you.